Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, there are some days when I wake up and think, you know, well, <laughs> what, what possible difference could a story make? And then I think, no, this is the thing that I've been given to do that I can do and to not do it would be really wrong. So let me tap into that hope and possibility and magic and do what I can do, which is tell the story. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Schultz from the Children's Book Review, and this is the Growing Readers Podcast. Today's guest is none other than the magnificent storyteller, Kate DiCamillo. I'm welcoming her back for the second time on the show to talk about the first book in her Narendi Tales series, The Puppets of Spellhorst. Kate DiCamillo's writing journey has been a truly remarkable one. She grew up in Florida and moved to Minnesota in her 20s when homesickness and a bitter winter led her to write because of Winn-Dixie. Her first published novel, which became a runaway bestseller and snapped up a Newbery honor. The Tiger Rising, her second novel, was also set in Florida and went on to become a National Book Award finalist. Since then, the best-selling author has explored settings as varied as a medieval castle and a magician's theater, while continuing to enjoy great success winning two Newbery Medals, and being named National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. She now has over 40 million books in print worldwide. Before I share our conversation, here's the synopsis for her novella, The Puppets of Spellhorst. From master storyteller Kate DiCamillo comes an original fairy tale with enchanting illustrations by Julie Morstad, in which five puppets confront circumstances beyond their control with patience, cunning, and high spirits. Shut up in a trunk by an old sea captain with a secret, five friends, a king, a wolf, a girl, a boy, and an owl, bicker, boast, and comfort one another in the dark. Individually, They dream of song and light, freedom and flight, purpose and glory. But they all agree they are part of a larger story, bound each to each by chance, bonded by the heart's mysteries. When at last their shared fate arrives, landing them on a mantle in a blue room in the home of two little girls, the truth is more astonishing than any of them could have imagined. A beloved author of modern classics draws on her most moving themes with humor, heart, and wisdom in the first of the Narendi Tales, a projected trio of novellas linked by place and mood, each illustrated in black and white by a different virtuoso illustrator, a magical 
and beautifully packaged gift volume designed to be read aloud and shared. The Puppets of Spellhorse is a tale that soothes and strengthens us on our journey, leading us through whatever dark forest we find ourselves in. Hi, Kate. Welcome back to the Growing Readers Podcast. I'm so happy to do this. It's just a, we had such a good conversation last time. So hopefully I'll come up with something new to say. Well, I you know, I was like, I hopefully I come up with some some uh, good questions that enable that for you, Kate. Uh, <laughs> so the first one I want to ask you is in that last conversation when we were talking about the Beatrice prophecy, you talked about feeling vulnerable in the lead up to a book release. And so I really want to ask you the question, how are you feeling now about your first book in the Norendi Tales, The Puppets of Spellhorse? It's been out for a couple of days. So like, what are your feelings? Um, well, <laughs> I always feel um, I, I, that feeling never goes away, that vulnerability. It's just like, you, you know, I've learned maybe to count that as a positive thing. Because it means that because I feel so exposed, that means that I must be showing a lot of my heart. And that's part of the job, right, is to uh, offer up my heart and hopefully to connect with other hearts. Um, and like you said, it's been a couple days and um, most of the reviews have been out. And so now it's this thing of um, talking to readers and, you know, and the one-on-one -on -one of talking to readers and seeing if it works for them. Well, it's funny that you mentioned reviews because that's going to be kind of what we go to next. So, oh boy. I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so because you are such an incredible storyteller and you really deliver your tales in such a way that the reader gets to decide what each of your stories means to them. And I just think that I feel like this particular story is a really sneaky story because yeah. there's so much that a reader could choose to take away from it. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I want to read to you two wonderful quotes from reviews by others. So you ready? Yeah. Okay. So the Horn Book in a starred review wrote, quotes, like many other stories featuring toys, from Hitty to the mouse and his child, there is a strain of melancholy here, with characters who long for autonomy, but whose existence is dependent on the imaginations of others. This mood is perfectly captured in digitally rendered pencil drawings that add specificity, a Regency-esque setting in fictional Narendi, dignity, drama, and sheer beauty, unquote. And then the next review excerpt is from Betsy Bird from a Fuse 8 production, School Library Journal. And what's actually really cool is that Betsy sent me a message last night and she actually read the excerpt. So I'm going to pull it up. There's so much more to talk about with this book. The role of the girls who play with the puppets and how their very different impressions of them cause great changes. The role of the maid, Jane Twidham, and what she wants. Heck, there's a whole undercurrent of feminism and the roles puppets and living women play within society. But I suppose I'll save that for someone else's thesis. The important thing to understand 
is that this is a story where it doesn't matter how physically passive you are, your interior life, your hopes and dreams and goals, that's the thing that matters. That's what's going to make you into an active protagonist in the end, regardless of whether or not you have the ability to move. The puppets of Spellhorse taught me that. Now imagine what it could teach your own children. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it kind of like it makes me tear up a little bit. Yeah. So, okay, I'll follow your lead as you as you talk about that. When I read particularly Betsy's review, I was like, mm, I don't really need to say what I'm thinking because Betsy just said everything I was thinking. Um, so first of all, thank you, Betsy, for for reading that for us. So thank you, Betsy. Yeah. I want to ask you, Kate, since we've heard what the Hornbook said, what Betsy said. What place in your heart did this story come from? And what is the meaning of the story for you? And I know that this is going to be separate from what other readers may take away from your story, but where in your heart did this story come from? Yeah. Wow. What a way to phrase it, where and where in my heart. And, you know, this is, and I think we talked about this some with the Beatrice prophecy. This is one of the mysteries of this job for me is that I don't fully know. Um, what a story is about until it goes into our readers' hands. And so it's like every good and thoughtful critique of it helps me understand my own heart and that thing of how I'm writing behind my own back. So, I mean, I can literally tell you where it came from and then we can like trace it through the tendrils of my heart, if you will. So a friend of mine uh, has a is an artist and has a workroom, and in the workroom displayed on her shelf was an owl puppet and a wolf puppet that had belonged to her when she was a child. And I saw them and they spoke to me immediately. And I'm like, can I borrow those? And she said, yes. And I took the puppets home and I put them um, in my office and I I still have them. Um, It took me forever to figure out what the story was. You know, it was one of those things that I would pick up and put down and pick up and put down. And uh, it didn't really take off until I had, until I put the word once in there, which is a really powerful word for me. And then also realized that there were more puppets besides just the wolf and the owl. That realization taps into a childhood memory for me of, um, you know, I grew up in a single parent home. My dad left the family, but he would still visit sometimes and unexpectedly often. <laughs> um, we didn't know when he was coming. And when he came, he came bearing gifts. And 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 one time he came bearing uh, puppets. Um, and they were these paper mache puppets, quite elegant. And I grew up on a dead end street in a small town in central Florida. And there was a neighborhood of kids there. And we used those puppets to put on a show. And I still remember how much I loved that feeling of getting to tell a story with those, those puppets. So then if you're still with me, how does that tie into my heart? It ties into my nine-year-old heart, holding those puppets, thinking, what's the story? And also thinking, anything can happen. And there is great power in being the one who gets to tell the story. So it's really interesting the way that you 
raised this question and where it's brought me to a point where I haven't even, you know, I've, I knew about, you know, that memory of the puppets. I've talked about that a little bit, but not that thing about why and, and that power of holding them and, and being the one who got to tell the story, which goes to Jane Twitham, right? And thinking, wait a minute, I can do something, you know, agency, power, you know. And, you know, Betsy's point is so really profound and true that it's just like necessary that that interior life and how it can sustain you and give you courage to to live in the world and so even if you're not physically moving you are very much alive because of your dreams do you mind if i read you a passage from the book that i thought captured how the story resonated with my heart yeah, I would love that. It kind of reminds me that we're we're all a part of each other's stories and and our stories while they're often impacted by others that we can and we should try our hardest to be the masters of our own stories. Um so that's why I picked this little spot. Could you sing the song again? said the king to the girl puppet. Which one? said the girl. I know three songs. I know the song about things that are not wanted. I know the song Jane Twidham sang to herself. And I know the song that Jane and I sang together in the play. I am filled with songs. Sing them all, said the wolf, and then we could remember it all, everything that has happened to us. It's just as the man in the toy store said, said the boy. We were in a story together. And I just, I loved that specific moment because I think it does tie in that agency of our own stories, but also remembering that we're, we are all interconnected. And Oh, and it was beautiful to hear you read it. Thank you. And it, it's great because it's like, you know, you never know if a story is working. And I, I want to, I do want to talk about the art for a minute because Betsy also talked about the art. No, it was the horn book that talked about the art, but Betsy talked about it too, but, and what it adds and what it does to uh, heighten the magic and to make the tale feel timeless. And as you were reading, this is what made me think of the art. I disappeared, this old 59 year old me, and I listened to you like I was eight years old which is the same thing that the art did as it rolled in. It was just like, it totally, it's like the story had nothing to do with me. And I got to live in, in this story through the art. Um, and it was just, and, and that's the same way it felt when you, you were reading. It's like, great, that has nothing to do with me, but I'm in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The artwork by um, Julie Morstad, do you have a specific illustration that you specifically liked the most? Uh, it's collective, but I have to give a shout out to that that two-page spread that ends the book. And I won't say what it is, but it it arrives for me each time like like it's a, like a jolt of electricity. It's so right and true. And you know, when I, um, when I was editing the book with my editor that was written what is uh, occurring in that illustration and the, my editor said I think we should do it without the words 
And I said, absolutely not, you know, you know, (laughs) kill your darlings kind of thing. And then I said, okay, I'll try. And it is so much more powerful without the words just to turn the page and see that. Yeah. 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 I can see that 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 would have been hard to let go, but such an amazing choice because I, I feel as though it's definitely a discussion book. It's a book that I hope that adults will read alongside their kids or with their kids or to their kids. And that when you get to that double page illustration at the end and no spoilers here, but I feel like that is just a great opportunity to open up discussion and get to the heart of what the story meant to the individual readers. I just, I really think that that's, that illustration allows for that so beautifully. Yeah. It just, um, and you just tumble into it. You're there. Yeah, there, you know, it's it's a portal. It's time to talk about the characters. <laughs> now, I do you have a copy of the book next to you by I chance? Do. I do. Yeah. Would would you be open to reading the prologue because I think it's a nice way to sort of introduce who all the characters are? Once there was a king and a wolf and a girl with a shepherd's crook and a boy with arrows and a bow. And also there was an owl. The king had a beard made of human hair. The wolf's teeth were bared in a snarl. The girl wore a green cloak. The arrows and the boy's quiver were sharp enough to prick a finger. As for the owl, his feathers were real. The king and the wolf and the girl and the boy and the owl lay jumbled together at the bottom of the trunk that had the word Spellhorst stenciled in gold letters on its lid and sides. The king and the wolf and the girl and the boy and the owl were puppets and they were waiting for a story to begin. I am happy to talk about as many characters as you want to, but I've picked two that I would love you to elaborate on more. Um, I picked the girl Uh and I, I also picked the wolf. And I want to know a little bit just about those characters. The reason I just think the girl really spoke to me almost as though she felt like the most relatable character to me and who I am. Um, And then the wolf, I just the comedy that the wolf brings. So let's let's start with the girl, because it's funny. I haven't talked about the girl at all. I've talked about the wolf quite a bit because of that comedic relief. And because the that wolf is so insistent in her, like my teeth are well and truly sharp. It's that's it's like she just <laughs> takes over a scene. But the girl is in the background, and to hear you talk about the girl makes me realize that you know because the girl is doing what I'm always doing. She's watching, and she's listening, and she's hoping. So you identify with the girl and 
and hearing you talk about her and me, and me thinking about her, it's just like, yeah, that's, that's me. You know, that's the person who's like watching the moon come up. And there's uh, that, I can't remember who said this, that the artist's duty is to pay attention and report back. And so that girl puppet is our artist. And the wolf puppet, yes, is comedic relief. Um, But also underneath that is that core of that desperate need to be seen for who she is. And that's what delivers the the pathos with her, you know? So um, it it was really, really fun to write that wolf because I myself always need to laugh. (laughs) But I felt that undercurrent of need with her and she kind of broke my heart too, so... Well, so I picked the girl and the wolf. Why don't you pick one other character that you would like to speak about today? I will talk about the owl because so much of this started with that owl. And because that was another really fun thing to do, because what you do is the owl understands that as an owl, he's supposed to be very wise, right? So he says these portentous, (laughs) often meaningless things. that aren't wise at all, but yet have a certain poetic grace to them uh, and, and, and a, in a weird way. So it was very fun. And again, be, because you could use the owl's utterances as a comedic beat. But then there comes the thing about, you know, the owl and what the owl longs for, which is flight. And so, again, that underpins this, it's that longing that that gives the owl an emotional resonance. So a really, really fun character to write. So now I feel like this is the classic question for authors in terms of, <laughs> in terms of you've written the book. What What's a highlight from the book for you? And it could be a feeling. It could be a specific passage that you wrote. I'm going to um, see if I can find this. Uh, it's page 69. So this was almost, well, it, it doesn't matter when it was, but it, it was before the book came out. Um, and I did an event in Deadwood, South Dakota. And the person who interviewed me read aloud this passage. And I, I was um, sitting next to her in front of an audience. And it moved me so much that I, I, I'll read it to you and see. It's like, so chapter 14. On the mantle, his majesty, the king, had given some thought to his circumstances and had grown quite agitated. How can they be taken away one by one? It does not seem right to me. I command someone to make it different. What kind of different do you want it to be? Said the girl. I want it to be a world where songs are sung every day. I want us to be together. I command the world to be different. Emma is writing a story with all of us in it, said the girl. We will all be together again. I do believe it will happen. I hope so. (laughs) 
So when um, the person who was doing the interview read that, um, she was talking about somebody that she had lost and how they had um, been together in story. It made me realize that it's always that thing that happens with when I write where the story is smarter than I am. But this that passage just kind of sums up what story can do for us and how it can connect us. And also just that that need that we, we have. The king is kind of ridiculous a little bit too with his kind of like, you know, utterances that a, a king would make. But I command it to be different. I want it to be a different world. And stories are a way to make the world different and a way to affect change. The the king, I like, I kept wavering on, is the king telling telling me that it's not enough to just shout to the world, I command it to be different. Like you, ha- you, you actually have to like do, you have to do, you can't just say it. But then at the same time, it actually has to start with saying it. You it have does. to have the thought. You have to have the thought to want the change before the action anyway. So to me, like you can't just shout you want the change. You have to make the change, but you can't make the change because you're currently stuck. But actually, that is how the change begins because you uttered it out loud. Right. And it goes back to Betsy Bird's point about the dreams. You know, it's like we might be we might be unable to move right now, but the dream can ultimately can animate us, you know? And so, yes, I command it to be different. Just the the mere acknowledgement that things need to be different, you know, has power. Often as creators for kids, we talk about providing children with the opportunity to be seen and to see the experience of others. So who are the kids that you imagine will see themselves in the puppets of Spellhorst? Oh, I don't know. Um, I imagine that there will be more than a few girl puppets, as it were, out there. Those people who watch and then think, how can that watching be turned into a story? There might be, wouldn't this be wonderful, a kid who has to announce her ferocity all the time and realizes that behind it there is something else that can be done rather than just shouting about how well and truly sharp her teeth are. You know, there is a different way to be in the world, and that could be by connecting to other people and being in that story. When I talk to you and I read your books and I see statistics such as your books have sold more than 44 million copies, it's amazing. It's tough for me to fathom that you have received 473 rejection letters in your lifetime for your writing. So where did your perseverance as a writer come from to not give up and to keep trying? Because as readers, we are so glad that you did not give up. Oh, I'm I'm so glad I didn't give up too. And it's, you know, I've got that number of rejection letters as a, a part of a PowerPoint when I talk to kids about becoming writers and that, okay, so you you write a story and um, after a while you think it's um, good enough that you can send it out. And then I always say to the kids, what, what do you get 
when you send the story out and they, they will generally shout money. And I'm like, nope, what you get is a rejection letter. And then I ask them to guess how many rejection letters and they'll say seven, 15, some, some smart aleck sometimes will say 50 and everybody will go, ha, ha, ha. And then I put that number up 473 and there's just this collective chaos. And um, I always say to them, every time I stand underneath this number, I think the same thing. What would have happened if I'd given up at 471? You know, I wouldn't be, I would not be this person who gets to do what I feel I was put here to do, which is to tell stories. And, and, and the thing, you know, back to your question, how, how do you keep on going? For me, it was because I had decided when I was in college that I wanted to be a writer. And what that meant for me at the time was that I was going to wear black turtlenecks and sit around looking bored and disdainful and tell everybody I was a writer and not write anything. And so I spent almost 10 years doing that, posturing, pretending. And by the time I sat down and started writing, I knew that I just had the emotional math of it down, which is that I couldn't make myself talented. I couldn't make myself lucky, but I could make myself do the work and I could be absolutely relentless about putting the work out there. So that was why I didn't give up because I knew that by the time I sat down and started doing it, that it all depended on whether or not I was, you know, going to buy a lottery ticket as it were, you know, that joke about, you know, please God, let me win lottery. And finally God says, you know, meet me halfway by a ticket. And so I, I was going to buy the ticket. I was going to keep on buying the ticket. I feel like that's a great message for, for everybody is like, you know, you you can't win the lottery if you don't buy the ticket. So, I mean, you you have, you have. And buying the ticket is sitting down and doing the work. Um, and also um, sending the work out into the world. And buying the ticket is also listening to people when they tell you um, what needs to be different. Buying the ticket is compromising. It's a complicated ticket, but it's 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 entirely up to you, that ticket. I also just have to point out that you kind of started your response, how maybe you were a posing first in, in what you thought a writer looked like with your black turtleneck and and yeah. and here you are today sitting with you know your black turtleneck on you've got your glasses on your head <laughs> your chin resting in your hands and I just right, I mean, that's always that's always the picture of uh, yeah no you're right and and you know you say all that and I think how lucky me that the dream came true you know Can we take a quick moment to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Tales of Despero, which has 6 million copies in print and counting. So how does that feel? Uh, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, 20 years. And it's that thing where, um, you know, it will happen in a signing line where, and it always kind of like knocks me sideways when 
somebody comes through the line and says casually, my fourth grade teacher read this to me and now I'm reading it to my fourth graders and I want to go, everybody, stop what you're doing. Listen to this miracle. Because to me, it also taps into one of my favorite things, which is, you know, the power of a teacher reading aloud to a classroom. Well, something fun about this 20th anniversary copies of Despero is that they also include a brand new short story titled The Tap Tapestry at Narendi. So I thought maybe you could share with listeners a little bit more about this setting of Narendi and what kind of world it is and, and how many more stories you imagine are going to take place there. Yeah, so this is the first time that Narendi showed up was in this story for Despero. And so Candlewick Press, when they were deciding to do a 20th anniversary edition, it's like, okay, we'll have new art from Tim and why don't you write an original story? And I am like, this is me. I say this a lot. Absolutely not. <laughs> I can't do that. That's impossible. No. And then, okay, I'll think about it. Same as, you know, the the, the art and, and at the end of Puppets of Spell Horse. And so, you know, and then I came back to him and said, I'll try, but I don't know. I can't, you know, and, and then it was just kind of like, I found that there was a little door and that I could pull on it and go back into this world. And it was deeply satisfying. And so, um, and I won't tell what that story is about other than, you know, I'll say that Princess P has grown up and has become a queen, but that's all I'll give away about it. But once I was in there, it's kind of like, oh, wait a minute, Narendi, this is a place where a wind can blow through and a tapestry can lift up and show you this other world hiding inside of this world. And so, I just kind of like latched onto that idea. I said to my editor, what if we called these other fairy tale novellas that are coming? What if they're all taking place in Narendi? And she said, where's Narendi? And I said, here, but you kind of have to squint a little bit. And so we, we both um, kind of like it, it just seemed full of possibility to both of us. So. I love the way you phrase that. Phrase that it's here, but you just have to squint a little bit, and I yeah, think that's right. the perfect definition or explanation of of what it feels like to, as a reader, to to visit in there. It feels it feels like here, but you're squinting a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I oh, love good. that. I'm glad that that it feels that way as the reader. Yes. Yeah. You know, when I was in the first few chapters, it does have that real classic kind of storytelling feeling to it. And I remembered back to a collection of Hans Christian Andersen fables stories that I had at home. And that that cover was always just tatted because we read it over and over and over again. And I'm just reading the puppets of Spellhorse took me back to that feeling of, of such sort of classic storytelling. So you could not have said, I mean, because that's, you know, I've got my own copy. I had a copy when I was a kid, but I've got my own copy as an adult that uh, of Hans Christian Andersen that I returned to again and again and again and again. So, I mean, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Pleasure. And I wish that I still had that specific book because I can still see the what purple. Was on the cover? I, I don't know what the illustration actually was. 
but I see the the lavender purple border around the illustration. Wow, so yeah. I also have a copy of Ferris, your next book, which is at the top of my TB Red pile. It's right over here. <laughs> Hi, Ferris. <laughs> but I have to do a little shameless plug for myself because our upcoming books actually share the same release date of March 5th, 2024. <laughs> yes, us. Yeah. And your title? It's called Catitude. So like attitude, but catitude. Like yeah. Wow. All right. Okay. It's a picture book. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. And it's I'm fun. Honored, honored to share a, a, a release date with you. Yeah. Uh, you're far too kind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate to like go like sort of, um, I guess, down in feeling, but honestly, with all the sort of broken and horrific things that are happening on earth, like even as we sit here and speak today, we don't have to go too deep because there does need to be a level of light in in the world, you know, that we can hope to spread. But I do want to know how how do you keep your sense that the world is surprising and enchanting and has the possibility to be better? Like what what do you do as a creator to tap into that? Uh, one of the things that I do is consciously move my mind uh, away. You know, like when I go on a walk, which I do a lot, I, I do a lot of walking. And instead of looking for what's not there or, or like relentlessly going over all the terrible news in my head as I'm walking, I, it's like I can feel like kind of like a physical shove of like, okay, that needs to stay there. Let me look at all the beauty that's here and let me pay attention to that. And that beauty, once I like lock into it because it's everywhere in faces that I walk past and dogs that I stop and talk to and the trees that I, um, you know, greet um, as long as nobody else is coming along to see me greeting the trees. It, once I lock into that beauty, then right behind it is all the magic and the possibility. You know, there are some days when I wake up and think, you know, well, <laughs> what what possible difference could a story make? And then I think, no, this is the thing that I've been given to do that I can do and to not do it would be really wrong. So let me tap into that hope and possibility and magic and do what I can do, which is tell the story. Well, just as you tell audiences at your author visits and talks, you say, go home and read to your adult. So I'm going to be putting you on the spot here, but is there a book nearby you with a passage that you'd like to read to me today? It can be anything. Like, is there anything calling to you that you've read recently or you have bookmarked or, and if you don't, it's okay. Yeah, no. How about I go and get a, a poem that I read this morning in, a, in an anthology? Is that good? I would love that. Okay. Hold up. Okay. Boy, this is fun. Thank you for, for letting me do it. Um, You're welcome. I, I love the chance to do it. Uh, so this is in a a collection um, that is actually, it was just kind of like, uh, it's for the board members of the National Poetry Series. And it's like, it's not published, but it, it was just, I got it from a friend, Ann Patchett, who's in it. 
they just got to, everybody got to select a poem. So Kevin Wilson, who is a wonderful writer, selected this poem by Mark Strand called Fiction. I think of the innocent lives of people in novels who know they'll die, but not that the novel will end. How different they are from us. Here, the moon stares dumbly down through scattered clouds onto the sleeping town. And the wind rounds up the fallen leaves and somebody, namely me, deep in his chair, riffles the pages left, knowing there's not much time for the man and the woman in the rented room, for the soldiers under the trees that line the river, for the wounded being hauled away to the cities of the interior where they will stay. The war that raged for years will come to a close. And so will everything else, except for a presence hard to define, a trace like the scent of grass after a night of rain, or the remains of a voice that lets us know without spelling it out, not to despair. If the end is come, it too will pass. Hmm. It's kind of a fitting a fitting piece. For right, right now. well, it's it spoke to me so much this morning when I read it um, because, and I was going to say to you, thank you for acknowledging everything that I mean, the absolute horror, and acknowledging that we still have to find a way to bring light and hope. Yeah, always. Well, before we go, Kay, I have to give a shout out to the incredible piece that Casey Sepp did on you for The New Yorker. It beautifully delivers the message that as a fictional author, your stories are not autobiographical, but they are an emotional truth. And I want everyone to go read this. So the piece is titled, quote, What Kate DiCamillo Understands About Children unquote. And the subtitle is, quote, her books for young readers have sold more than 44 million copies. They are full of yearning, loneliness, ambivalence, and worry, unquote. And I have to say that it absolutely broke me when I reached the end and I was crying physically so hard that my body was shaking and it in an honest move to avoid talking about why it broke me. Although maybe someday I we will have that conversation. I'm going to share what might be a really surprising excerpt for you from which I need to know more about. So Casey Sepp wrote about you, quote, the closest thing to luxury in her house is two pairs of slippers one under her writing desk, the other under her claw foot tub. During a tour of Eudora Welty's home in Jackson, Mississippi, she was struck by the humanity of the novelist's slippers, which were still waiting faithfully under her bathrobe long after her death. DiCamillo talked about them so much that her best childhood friend, Tracy Bailey, got her one pair, and her best writing friend, the author Anne Patchett, got her another, unquote. So Kate, what are the slippers? Because I might need to add them to my wish list. <laughs> Should I go and get you the, the slippers and show them to you? Yes. I would okay. I would love that. All right, hold on. Those are the ones that Tracy Bailey. Okay, made. wait, you're, you're going to freak out right now. 
How fantastic is that? It's exactly the same. Yeah, we have the same. It's exactly <laughs> the same. Um, and those are the ones that sit under the tub. And these are the ones that sit under the desk. They're like, I slip them on. I've said this to Anne. You know, I, in the summertime, I, I don't slip them on because it's too hot. But now I have about six months where every morning I will slip these on. And I feel like I am stepping into the role of the storyteller when I do it. So, yeah. Okay. I just, that is so funny that I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many things we could have talked about from that New Yorker article. And I chose to bring the light and talk about the slippers and the fact that the first pair you showed me, I'm literally wearing the exact I know. Right I'm now. like, what are the chances? They're really kind of infinitesimal, the, the, the chances that we would, I mean, like, it's almost impossible. There are so many slippers in the world. I mean, come on. Um, I, I, at some point, you know, maybe you'll like, let me come back when Ferris is out in the world. If you're not, I mean, I don't know how often I get to come on, but I will make time for you, Kate. <laughs> we'll talk about, we'll talk more about what a profound experience it was for Casey Sepp coming for me, for her to come here. It, it was that thing of, um, it taps into one of my favorite stories from Isaac Dennison about uh, the stork and a person who, it does. It, it, I won't go into it all, but it's just like it helped me see the pattern of my life to have that intelligent, that fierce intelligence in that humanity of Casey Sapp looking at me. So I'm glad that the article moved you. So, yeah, it it definitely it physically moved me. <laughs> my husband is like, "What is wrong?" <laughs> I was like. I'll have to tell you in a few minutes. <laughs> I will. I will. I will tell that to her. It will matter to her. So, yeah. and it matters to me. Well, in a world that moves fast, except when we take a moment to listen to a podcast or even better, read a book. What is one important message you would like to leave with the growing readers, listeners today? Let's go all the way back to Betsy Bird. Let's go back to that. If you have an interior life, if you dare to dream, um, then you can also affect change. Well, Kate, I would love to finish after that beautiful answer that you just gave on a philosophical note. The more I read your fictional stories and learn about your personal story, the more I realize that I am Kate DiCamillo you are me. And what I mean by that is if only we all took the time to notice our stories crossing paths and linking together, that our involvement and impacts on our stories and the stories of others, we'd all discover we are part of each other. So what impacts you is likely to affect me. And maybe then the world could become a kinder place than it is. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for writing The Puppets of Spellhorst. Thank you for writing all your books. And most importantly, thank you for sharing your time with me today. I've loved every second. I too have loved every second and I don't have mascara on. So you can't tell that I'm I'm crying, but I am. And thank you. So thank you for bringing your whole self to a story and for 
the safe place to talk about what matters. Um, so, and for making me think and for making me feel today. So, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this quest for growing readers. Be sure to check out our show notes. You'll find links to order your copies of The Puppets of Spellhorse. For more information about Kate DiCamillo, visit katedcamillo.com. And remember, if you love listening to the Growing Readers podcast, you can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you enjoy listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get new episodes as soon as they launch. If you're enjoying our book chats, please leave us a review. And while you're at it, tell a friend to come and have a listen. The Growing Readers podcast is a production of the Children's Book Review. To find more books just like The Puppets of Spellhorse, I hope you'll visit us at thechildrensbookreview.com. Thank you.